uh, Kathy Ritz Hinchcliffe's uh, celebration of life yesterday. And I think Chuck is here. It was just a special time for us as we celebrate Kathy. We're going to miss her in our community. Um, yeah, so we started a series to start the new year called Disciple, an identity and a calling. And we've been talking about what it means to follow Jesus. As a church, we are followers of Jesus. Um, and, and we believe that there's just seven different marks of discipleship. This is what it means to, to be a follower of Jesus. So just to review real quick, uh, the first mark is this holy calling. We talked about how, how God has initiated this relationship with, uh, uh, with us. Um, Jesus called his first disciples and said, come and follow me. And th that same calling is for all of us, that, that Jesus looks at us and says, I want you to be my follower. Uh, I want relationship with you. The second mark was the idea of being humbly surrendered. And so surrendering our lives to just the will of God, uh, what, what God wants from us, and saying, Lord, I, I just want to, to, to be the person that you have created me to be. And so we surrender ourselves to him. We come to this moment where he becomes Lord of our lives, Lord of our hearts. Um, the third thing was biblically formed. We talked about how, uh, for us, scripture, the sacred text, God's word, forms us to be a certain kind of people in this world. And so we orient our lives around, our lives around um, the studying scripture, being formed by scripture, learning scripture. And then fourth week, last week, my dad was here, and he talked about this idea of empowered witness, um, that, that we are empowered to be uh, witnesses, image bearers of God in this world. And so today I just want to talk about the fifth mark, which is this idea of countercultural influence. So the fifth mark, countercultural influence. And, uh, and this is kind of, the, the premise today is this, that, that Christians are called to be different. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to be different. Uh, you're different in this world. First uh, Peter 2, Peter writes uh, this letter, he says, in verse, starting in verse 9, you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from your sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. Like, that's not a word we use very often, right? The pagans. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So just in this passage, in this letter from Peter, the first part of it talks about this idea of being holy, a, a, a priestly uh, uh, identity, that we, we represent God on this earth. And this idea of holy means uh, set apart. There, there's something different about us. We're, there's a sacredness uh, to what God is calling us to. Um, when we hear that, we're, we might think like, oh, holier than thou, or like a holy roller. Um, but what it's talking about, this idea of it, is holiness is, is allowing God uh, just to, to, to come into our, our hearts and to mold us into the kind of people that he wants us to be. So we are different. We look different. Um, and, but then it talks about there's a reason for that. Uh, we, we are called to be different um, and, and to say it in a very simple way, I would say Christians are called to be different for the good of the world. God is, God is working through all of us individually, uh, as a community, as a church, um, calling us to be different for the good of the world. And we live in this world that is broken, that is dysfunctional, that is full of darkness. And God is moving through all of us, 
calling us to a certain type of life that we are at work for the common good, for the kingdom of God here and now. And here's kind of the strategy for it. Here's how the kingdom works. Jesus tells this story, of it's a parable in Matthew 13. And it says in verse 31, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. And though it is the smallest of seeds, of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that birds come and perch on its branches. Talks about the kingdom activity in this world starts small, like a mustard seed, and yet it grows and expands, being this big tree. And then he told us still another parable, verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Now, I can't bake anything, um, and so this kind of language doesn't really connect with me. Um, Marcy's wonderful at baking. Uh, but the idea of this, <laughs> the idea of this is how a yeast works through a dough. It starts as something that's very small, and then it just kind of spreads throughout the whole dough, right? And, and you don't need very much of it for it to, to take root and to just to spread throughout the whole dough. And, and Jesus is talking about this idea that the kingdom of God starts small. It's local. It's these little expressions, these community churches throughout our city of people who are just saying, Lord, I am available to be used by you for the good of my city, for the good of your kingdom. As we gather here, what we do is sacred. This is this expression, um, even as we call it a church plant, right? There's a seed that has been dropped in this community um, that, that God is growing. And, and this is how the kingdom works. It always starts small. It's local. And yet, as it, as it takes root, it grows and has great influence to transform a place for the kingdom of God. We're called to be different for the good of the world around us. And it always kind of starts uh, this slow, small activity of God's people um, doing the things that God desires uh, for us to do. A couple months back, I had uh, breakfast with Chuck Sharp. Some of you know Chuck and Stephanie. Chuck's in the back. Uh, in the sound booth, um, and uh, they had kind of moved to California and come back, and so we were kind of catching up and having breakfast. I think it was at the U.S. Egg. I'm a big omelet guy, big breakfast burrito guy too, uh, but we were having, uh, having breakfast and just kind of catching up on life, and then one of the things I realized is that we both have a very similar interest and fondness towards 20th century European theologians. Uh, love the writing uh, that came out of Europe at that time, and I don't find a lot of people that like to talk theology with me as a pastor. So I'm like, this is a great conversation. So um, everyone else probably be bored out of their mind. Me and Chuck, though, we we're tracking. Uh, and one of the, the names that came up was this old theologian named Karl Barth. And it's spelled like uh, Barth. And this is how you kind of know if somebody knows like old theologians, if they can pronounce Barth correctly. So it's Karl Barth. And uh, so Chuck and I started talking about these books that we had been reading and, you know, Barth's writing and like, Germany, between the world wars, kind of after the world war, um, helping the church navigate everything that happened, like with the Nazis and all that. Um, so pretty compelling stuff that he's writing. And uh, so I, I gave Chuck one of my old Karl Barth books and kind of started reading it as well. And I came across this quote. And when it came to this idea of countercultural influence, a church having influence in a world, especially in a world like that, that Barth's writing into, uh, I just thought this quote was so, so compelling. It says this. Karl Barth says, the church exists to set up in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner. 
and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. Now, this was written in German, translated to English, and then retranslated to English. So let me read that one more time. The church exists to set up in the world a new sign, which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. Talking about this countercultural influence that we should have as the body of Christ. Two big ideas in here. First, if we go to the next slide. Um, this idea of being radically dis radical dissimilarity, radically different. To be a follower of Jesus, radical dissimilarity, looking different than the world around us. And then this idea for hopeful promise. Christians are called to be different for the good of the world around them. There's this radical dissimilarity and hopeful promise that we are called to as followers of Jesus, as we live out the kingdom here and now. So I want to look at this idea of radical dissimilarity, right? This set apart, this holiness thing. Um, in, in Romans chapter 12, this is a very kind of popular passage, and you may have, have heard it, but it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So something about us giving ourselves to God is part of this worship. And then it says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. These followers of Jesus, Paul's writing, and he says, don't conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, one commentator says on this passage that we're not to be like a chameleon which takes the color uh, from its surroundings. Our color is given to us by Jesus. The culture around us, uh, we don't conform to it. We're transformed by God's spirit in us, calling us to be a certain kind of people for the good of the world around us. What we do, how we act, what we say, all of that matters um, because we bring life to people as followers of Jesus. When I uh, kind of think like how this plays out, like how culture kind of forms us, I think for me, the easiest one to, to say is like when I went to college. Um, if you've ever gone to college, uh, what you'll find, I remember in high school, my teachers would always be talking about college and they'd be like, we need to, you to you know, figure out how to be a responsible adult because then you're going to get to the real world in college and you're going to have to do all this on your own. And then I got to college and you know what I realized? Like, that's not the real world. Like, it is the biggest cultural bubble maybe in society. And I love college. Like, college is so important. Go to college, kids. Um, <laughs> But, but what was crazy is you go to college, uh, depending on where you go, every little like, campus has its own culture, and you, you get absorbed into it. And I remember thinking, like, hearing these different things about the college I was going to, and I was like, I'm going to be different, I'm going to stick out, I'm going to go and just be a different person. And then you just, you, you're living dorm life, you get surrounded by this culture that's, that's a cultural bubble. And before you know it, you're like part of that culture. You just get absorbed into it, you're part of it. Um, you know, some, some colleges have good Greek cultures, some are very, like, you know, party schools, some are, uh, they're, they're all different, you know, colleges have different identities. I went to a small school in Indiana, and so, um, you know, it was like small school living, um, but, but you get absorbed into these different cultures, and it's so hard not to conform to it, and not all of those cultures are bad, but what happens is so much of the world that we live in, the culture around us shapes us, and, and that's not always a bad thing, but there's always unintended consequences of that. Every single thing that we take in from information to how we live here in Phoenix 
uh, we receive all sorts of different messages that are forming us to be certain kinds of people. And that doesn't change depending on like what, what time you live, where you live, it's always happening. And what Paul's saying to the church is you could be conformed to the world and let the world form you, or you could be conformed uh, to the way of Jesus, which is very different than the way of the world. They'll make statements like, Jesus makes statements like, it is more blessed to give than receive. There's these countercultural things that followers of Jesus do. We aren't people that are just focused on our own interests, but also on the interests of others. We are uh, peacemaking people uh, who, who want to bring about life to our communities. The world doesn't revolve around us. It revolves around our Savior, and we are a part of the story. To be a follower of Jesus calls us to be not conformed to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed. When you think about things like money and sex and power, um, the way that we view all of that through the lens of Jesus is different. Jesus calls us to a certain kind of life so that, that the way that we live in this world uh, glorifies God, points people uh, to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus kind of gives uh, the way of his kingdom in these things called the Beatitudes. We know these, these Beatitudes, uh, uh, if you've been around church for a while, sometimes we hear them over and over again and they become familiar or watered down to us. But when you hear these words, this type of kingdom that we're a part of, Jesus says this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We think about this different kind of kingdom that we belong to and these, these different types of values in the world around us. And Jesus says there's another way. The way of the world is exhausting it will leave you heartbroken. It will leave you worn out. It will leave you burnt out. And the way of Jesus, which is different and requires intentional living, uh, actually allows us to tap into life to the full. And it makes us people that bring life to others around us. There's this radical dissimilarity to be a follower of Jesus. But attached with that is this idea of hopeful promise. Hopeful promise. The way that we live points people to something beyond this world. We're a part of something that is eternal. We're a part of something that is global. We're a part of something that, that God is doing here that just transcends our current time and moment. We travel through this life differently because we have this future destination that is crashing into this present reality. We are hopeful in how we live uh, my wife and I lived in Dallas for a couple of years. Uh, we were missionaries to a foreign country in Texas. And uh, it, was, it was a fun season. It was a challenging season. And uh, there's, you know, different things that we learned in this time being in Dallas. Um, I, I remember we were part of, like, a church startup like this. And uh, we had some good stories come out of it. We had some really, like, you know, learning experiences coming out of it. There was one week in particular where... Uh, we had this uh, couple that was upset with us. That happens in the church. 
And uh, they came and got breakfast with us. And they came and they had like this list of 15 things that they found wrong with me. And, uh, and it was like them lobbing grenade after grenade. And I'm just sitting there taking it in. And like, I have limit. Here's one thing I learned. I have limitations and weaknesses. Um, and that was like when I found out. Like, uh, just hard conversation. I remember like, it, it happened quickly. They were in a house and they left. And it was like, what just happened? And like, Marcin are trying to figure out like how to pick the pieces. We were just like heartbroken. Um, hearing, you know, something like this, and um, we were really, like, super discouraged, uh, and uh, we had another another couple in the church that had kind of connected with us and were coming, um, and, and it was an interesting couple, not the type of people that usually come to church. The husband uh, was, an, was an atheist. Um, the, the wife had, had grown up really outside the church. They didn't want anything to do with church, super skeptical of, of Christians, and uh, but they had kids kind of our age and kind of came in, and our community took them in and just uh, community-wise uh, started loving on them. And, uh, and we became really good friends, and we had great conversations about where we were at worldview-wise, and we were so different. But we became really good friends, and I remember that week we had a dinner planned with them. And uh, they, they took us out to uh, the Capitol Grill. And, like, Marcin and I are, like, from North Phoenix, Scottsdale. We're used to, like... Like, we go to a nice restaurant. We've never been, like, wined and dined like this. This couple took us out um, and uh, just, like, spoiled us that night. And we were like, this is amazing. This is great. And, like, we need this because we're so discouraged. And, um, but I remember, like, the husband stood up at one point and, like, gave a toast. And we were all like, what is going on? And he just said, uh, you know, I, I just want to thank you guys for inviting us into this community. He's like, we've, we've never been a part of something like this before. And since we've come here, he's like, I don't know what it is, uh, but our lives have been different. Our marriage has been different. Parenting our kids has been different. Like, this community has just been so life-giving uh, to us. And I just wanted to say thank you. And he's, like, tearing up. Afterwards, we found out from his wife, like, she's never seen him cry before. Um, and it was just something for us that we realized, like, uh, like, this is when the church is doing the right things. When the church is living and embodying the way of Jesus in this world with this hopeful promise, it connects with people who, who have no hope, people who have no purpose and meaning. And uh, we still have been, been friends with this couple since we've come back from our missionary trip. Uh, and, uh, and, and it just was this reminder that the hopeful promise that the church has in this world pours life into people. Uh, there's this old letter that was written that I think was meaningful for our church. I've shared it, I think, when we were in our first year as a church, and it was a, a letter from the second century trying to describe followers of Jesus and what they were like in this culture. And it was written from uh, this man named Methodus writing to Diognetius. Um, and, and they're trying to describe, here, here's what Christians are doing, and, and here's what it looks like. And in this letter, this ancient letter, it says, these Christians, they busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their own lives, they go far beyond what the laws require. They love all men, and by all men are persecuted. They are poor, and yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute, and yet they enjoy complete abundance. To put it simply, what the soul is in the body, that the Christians are in the world. That the soul is to the body, that's what Christians are to the world. Why does Jesus call us to, to be radically dissimilar, to be hopeful, and, and how we live is because we breathe life into our communities that need life. To be a follower of Jesus is to be 
different. I want to close with this story from uh, Scott Jathani's uh, book, Futureville. Uh, he's one of the authors that um, I really enjoy. Just pulls out these great stories, but this story really caught my attention. And uh, it was about uh, this man named uh, Vidran Smilovich, who was the cellist of Sarajevo. And uh, during uh, the Bosnian War in the early 90s, some of you might know this story, uh, the city was under siege over like a three-year period. Something like 10,000 people died in the Civil War. Um, it's like a very modern city that's been bombed out. And it's, so it was really strange like, to, to see kind of the, the carnage that was taking place. Um, this cellist had a bunch of friends that, uh, at, that they're living in this community where you know, bombs are going off. There's snipers everywhere picking off friends. It's dangerous to go outside. And there was a bakery in this community. There were a bunch of people that were going to get bread one day. And bread was like hard to come by in this war-torn city. And a bomb went off in this line, and it killed 22 of his neighbors. And so this cellist like, has this like, breakdown moment where he like, kind of like, loses his mind like, to see your neighbors killed, to see something like this happen, and decides that he wants to fight back. But he doesn't know, he doesn't know what to do. He just wants the war to end. Um, so he decides to fight back with the only thing that he has, his cello. And so he puts on his tuxedo. And he goes out for 22 days to represent one of each one of his neighbors. And he goes into this bomb crater in his tuxedo, and he plays the cello every day, plays the cello in the midst of this war that's going on. So like some of the people that experienced this said, it was so bizarre. Like No one's going outside. You're in this war zone. There's, you hear bombs and shots going off. You're afraid of getting hit by a sniper. And then there's just this man in this tuxedo playing the cello. It's just a surreal moment that's happening. And then he would continue to do that over and over again. And he said, the only thing that I felt like I could help was to bring beauty to this absolutely ugly situation. And if I die, I die. But all I can do is bring beauty to it. And, and for some reason, somehow, the whole time he's playing, completely exposed to this war, he never gets hit. He never gets shot. It's almost like he became this... This, uh, this safe zone in the, in the war zone where he wasn't a target. And he would play the cello over and over again. There's this picture of him. Uh, I think we've got a photo. Yes, you can kind of see it. This is the bombed out city hall. And he's here, and he's just playing the cello. Um, it's, it's such an, you know, an, it's just such a, a crazy, crazy thing. And yet the thing that he did is inspiring these people with beauty, with peace, with art to say, there's a different way that we can live. There's a different way that we can live. One of the reporters afterwards was asking him, you know, why are you doing this? It's crazy. And he's like, I'm crazy. He's like, why aren't you asking the people that are bombing each other why they're, what they're doing is crazy? Why don't you talk to them about being crazy? Um, I imagine that countercultural influence for the church, the kind of courage and creativity that is required looks like playing the cello in a war zone. The church, the body of Christ, radically dissimilar, hopeful towards the future. Looks like someone playing the cello in a war zone. What are we called to? What is God saying is, I have this purpose for you. I have come to redeem you. I, I love you. I, I have this life that, that I offer you. And I want you to use the gift of grace and salvation to bring about love and beauty to this world that is broken.
radical dissimilarity, hopeful promise, the mark of a disciple. It's one who is countercultural and has influence to bring about life. So Tim's going to come back up, and I want to close with this challenge. When we think about these two ideas of radical dissimilarity and hopeful promise, the first, with radical dissimilarity, what this requires is this transformation of the heart. The heart is where our desires come from. That you would come today and say, Lord, I don't want to conform to the desires of this world, the pattern of this world, but I would ask that you would just transform my desires in my heart. That you would give me a heart for, your th- for, for what, what you want in this world. This, uh, the old leader of World Vision that we ran the marathon for yesterday would say, give me, uh, let my heart break for the things that break your heart in this world. That you would come today as we get ready for communion and say, Lord, transform my heart and my desires. And the second thing, um, this hopeful promise, it requires a transformation of the mind, of the mind. That we would, we would be people, uh, that, that our minds would be renewed when we enter situations that are tough that we would think of the things of God as his followers, that the ways of Jesus would just be prominent on our minds, that God would come and renew our minds, our way of thinking, our desires, our thinking, our heart, our mind today. The mark of disciple, countercultural influence for the good of the world around us. We close each week with communion, and for us it represents this story that we're a part of, that this God who loved us, came down, walked on the earth. His name is Jesus. Showed us what it means to be human and revealed to us what God is like. This Jesus went to the cross, died on the cross, was crucified for the sin and brokenness, all of the ways that we get wrong, to conquer sin and death. And then resurrected, giving new life, life eternal. When we come to the communion table, we are reminded of this God who loves us. We take a piece of bread that represents his body that was given to us. We take a cup of juice that represents his blood that was poured out for us. And we remember what God has done. But then we also proclaim it. We proclaim that this is the story that we are a part of, and we are the body of Christ, the church. Today, as we come to the table, let us come with this challenge of saying, Lord, I want you to just renew my mind, renew my heart today so that I could be uh, the things that you want me to be, the things that are hindering your work in my life, Lord. Maybe it's something I need to surrender. Maybe it's something that I need to change. But Lord, I ask that you would just renew me, heart and mind. When you're ready, you can move to the tables. We practice open communion here. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you. We're just going to spend some time worshiping, reflecting. And uh, you can take communion on your own, and then Tim will dismiss us. But let us pray. Lord, we're so thankful for your love for us. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for grace and forgiveness. Life is difficult, Lord. Life is challenging. Relationships are hard. Finances are hard. Work is hard. Marriage is hard. We carry so much weight burden, stress. But today, Lord, we're reminded that you offer life. That you take the things about us that miss the mark, you redeem them. And you call us to a life 
as your followers, Lord. To not be conformed to the ways of this world, to be transformed, to be people of your kingdom, citizens of heaven. Today, Lord, we just pray that your spirit would just breathe into us. It would refresh our hearts, transform our minds. We'd be the kind of people that have the courage to do things like playing the cello in a war zone. In the midst of this world, Lord, that is so difficult. That our lives would be gifts to the community because you are a gift to us that we would bless others because we've been blessed. Meet us here today, Lord. We love you. And it's in your son's name we pray.